This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. In Metro Seeks to Atlanta. be defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Icon family and friends, it's good to be with you again. We're so thankful that we have the technology to stay uh, in community with each other as we go into God's word together. Uh, Someone on our staff reminded us that while the coronavirus is still very real and it's a very uh, real issue and a very real concern, um, it's not our only concern. And it honestly, as believers, it's not even our main concern. And that isn't to say that uh, it's not something we should be concerned about and it's not something that we should care about and, and try to figure out how to uphold each other in the midst of that. But we still need, uh, we need to be able to function in all these other areas of our lives. And we need to be able to continue to grow spiritually. We need to be able to, you know, it, it can be possible to be so overwhelmed with the things con- uh, related to the con- c- coronavirus that we avoid or even ignore other deep spiritual issues. And so they all need to happen concurrently. And so we hope that uh, we can do that together uh, today. So let's do this. I want to start with this question. Just how free are you? As westernized uh, American Christians, um, we take our freedom very seriously. Freedom is a big deal. Uh, We value freedom. We would do things in the name of freedom, both good and not so good things in the name of freedom. Freedom feels like the ultimate value that we cling to with our lives. And so we pride ourselves on being free to choose and being free to not choose and being free. Sometimes sometimes we take great pride in the freedom to be stupid and to make really dumb decisions, but we want our freedom to be dumb, right? Freedom is something that we value almost to a fault. But my question is just how free are you? Our text today, Jesus actually challenges this idea of real freedom. He challenges the idea that we get to define our freedom for ourselves, that we get to determine if we are free. And I think that when we look at what we've already covered, right, look at all the things that we've already seen in the chapters leading up to uh, or including chapter eight, right? If you look at chapter six, seven, and eight, you see Jesus using uh, the wilderness experiences to teach us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the wilderness experience. Remember, remember the manna and how Jesus uh, made himself the bread of life. In his way, he's saying, uh, uh, God gives you what you need every day in the same way that he gave the children of Israel what they needed every day. Jesus gives you what you need. This bread never ends. Then he talks about water and shows how Jesus is like water. Remember back when Moses struck the rock and when he struck the rock, water came out. And Jesus is saying, I am like the water that comes out of the rock, except that this fountain is so deep. It never ends. It will quench your thirst and you'll never be thirsty again. Your thirst will always be met. That's what that means, right? To, to not be thirsty again doesn't mean you won't yearn for something else. It just means that whenever you yearn for it, it will be satisfied in Jesus. It's not bad to be thirsty or hungry as long as it's met in the right way. The problem is when we try to meet those needs ourselves, right? We feel the freedom to meet those needs ourselves. We also see Jesus using the metaphor of light. 
when he says that I am the light of the world. That harkens back to what we saw back in the Old Testament when the children of Israel were uh, being led by this cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night. This reminder that God was leading them everywhere that they needed to go. This reminder that God was protecting them, that God was surrounding them, that God was going with them, that God would never leave them. This was the light that would shine into the darkness. And in the same way that back then those people needed to receive the light, we need to receive Jesus as that light. And those that don't receive that light would remain in darkness. Jesus said, some may say, uh, I love him. Some may say, uh, honestly, some people might look at that and go, well, yeah, I, I, I love him and I, and I believe him. And some might say, I, I don't know. Maybe Jesus is one light among many lights. Maybe he's one source of food among many sources of food. And so when you look at where Jesus is now, We've gone through chapter six, chapter seven, this first half of chapter eight. You, you, you see this place where the Bible says that many people believed in him. Many people believed in him. Now that uh, should be a little questionable for us. That should make us wonder, okay, I mean, it's a good thing that folks are believing, but there's a big question we should ask about this, this passage we're going to look at. Because all of these folks, Jesus has been laying out over and over again, you need me, you need to believe in me because there are ways in which your own sin is slavery. You're not able to choose the light that is me because you feel the freedom to choose other lights. You're not able to choose the food that actually will meet your greatest appetite because you think you can find food elsewhere. You continue to thirst unsatiated because you believe that you can find water elsewhere. You see, what our sin does, what our slavery to self does, is it makes us think erroneously that we have a freedom that we actually don't have. You see, outside of believing in Jesus, we don't truly have the freedom to follow him. We don't have the freedom to choose him if we don't actually believe in him. And so that's the reason when we look at this this passage, and it's a, it's a pretty sizable passage, and we're going to walk through it a little bit at a time as we, as we go through this. But what we're going to see here is Jesus is going to show us the features of authentic faith, the faith that frees. He's going to show us what it truly means to have authentic faith and not counterfeit faith, to have real faith and not fake faith. Obviously, fake news is this mantra that we love to see thrown around over and over again. And really, the only place where Jesus seems to use that is when he's talking about what authentic faith looks like versus counterfeit faith. And so you see, when we look at this, I just want to point out four areas where Jesus shows us what authentic faith looks like. The first area is uh, believing in him. The second is abiding in him. The third is living for him. And the fourth is being like him. These are the true factors that make up what authentic faith looks like. So I'm going to read a little bit as we go. I won't read the whole thing in one setting. I'm going to walk through a few pieces here. But uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 30 all the way through 59. 
Now, when we begin, obviously we see what what has already happened uh, last week and Jesus has talked about the light of the world and he's already starting to create some angst amongst the Jewish leaders. And the Bible says in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Many believed in him. Now, here's what's interesting. Yes, people are believing. We would think that if people become believers, we should be rejoicing. Yay, people believed. They professed that they believed. They declared that they believed. And yet Jesus's response to their belief wasn't just great. It's about time. Good for you guys. Let's keep moving. He begins to question their faith. He responds to them believing by questioning their faith. Now, he, do, he doesn't question their faith in order to turn them away from their faith. Sometimes people will question faith in order to look for reasons to not believe. But Jesus questions our faith to validate, deepen, and even authenticate our faith. And here's, here's why that's a love and that, why that's a real blessing. Jesus wants to ensure that we truly believe correctly the things that we say we believe. You see, real love that challenges should be challenging to make sure that you have a deepening love for Jesus. So it's actually loving to be challenged if the challenge deepens and validates our faith. It would be unloving to let someone either believe the wrong thing or insincerely believe the right thing. You see that? It would actually be unloving for Jesus to allow us to believe the wrong thing or to insincerely believe the right thing. Now, it's interesting when you look at belief, Jesus doesn't assume that all belief is real belief. In Matthew, he said, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of God. In Mark, he says, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord is of my kingdom. And so look at what Jesus says then in verse 31, because you know, you've got these folks who are believing and they show up as believers, and look at how this conversation transpires. In verse 31, then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Think about how he responds. You've got people that say, we believe in you, we follow you, and he responds with a challenge. Well, if you believe in me, and if you follow me, then you would abide in my word. You would abide in me. You'll know the truth and that truth will set you free. Now, when he talks about the word, abide in my word, he's basically saying the sum total of everything that makes up who I am, the sum total of my very existence, the sum total of my very presence. If you abide in the word, you are abiding in Jesus. We're gonna see this a few weeks down the road in John 15 where Jesus says, abide in me. So here he's saying, abide in my word. Later he'll say, abide in me. Now, look at how they respond. Keep in mind, these are folks who feel like that they already have this figured out. They feel like they know where their light is. They know where their food is. They know where their water is. They don't need anyone else to come tell them that they've had that incorrect. They don't need anyone to come and challenge this very faith they claim to have because it makes up a huge identity for them. And so Verse 33, look how they respond. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? You see, they understand what Jesus is referring to. Jesus is not referring to physical slavery here. 
And so there are some people who might have taken that text out of context and think this is talking about a physical slavery. It's not. This idea of freedom is supposed to be the counter to this deep spiritual slavery that we all find ourselves in when we're born. And so here they're looking at him and they're going, how dare you? How dare you even imply that we would be slaves to anything? We're not spiritually enslaved to anyone. You know why? Because we know who our ancestor is, and that is Abraham. We understand, you see, they understood this was a spiritual reality to which Jesus was referring. And they thought they had a good spiritual response. They trusted in this spiritual heritage that they believed they had because of who their ancestor was. Abraham is our spiritual father. That is where our freedom is. So you look at verses 34 through 38, you see Jesus begin to clarify their misunderstanding. Verse 34, Jesus responded, truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave doesn't remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I've seen in the presence of the Father. So then you do what you have heard from your Father. You see, they have this misunderstanding. They believe that uh, they can't possibly be enslaved because their spiritual freedom is rooted in their ethnicity, in their ethnic connection to Abraham. They believe because we come from good stock, because I come from a a rich uh, heritage of believers, uh, and and specifically not just because there are our relatives, but because we are a part of an ethnic group that is has a deep spiritual heritage, we therefore are free. And Jesus begins to 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 clarify and call them out, and he says, do you, you you do realize that your faith is not rooted in just being connected to the right people. Your faith is not rooted in just how godly your parents were. Your faith in your freedom is not rooted in just how godly your grandparents were. Well, this relative was a pastor, and this relative took me to Bible study all the time, and this relative had me in church all the time, or I grew up in church my whole life. I know what I need to know. That has nothing to do with your freedom. Why? Because just knowing about those things does nothing to ensure that, you, that the chains of your own slavery to sin have been broken. Those things don't ensure that. These folks have been in the temple, they've been studying the scriptures all of their life. And they've placed so much of their faith in their DNA and in their heritage. And Jesus says, if you really look, matter of fact, we're going to see how he starts to uh, call them out because as he kind of shows them, listen, I I know that you're descendants of Abraham. I know where your ethnicity is. I know what your DNA says. But here's what I also see. You're trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. In other words, you are in such a sla- you're in such slavery to your own sin. You know what sin does? Sin is, is this, uh, this, this propensity we have to create truth for ourselves that gets rooted in our identity. And here's what happens. When that truth gets challenged, we want to take out the truth bearer. We want to ignore the truth bearer. We want to get revenge on the truth bearer because listen, the, the truth should always take precedence over my truth. 
We love to say that. My truth. What's your truth? What's my truth? God's truth is not subjective. And so whatever truth we believe we have needs to be in subjection to this objective truth of God. You see, their truth was we're free. Jesus' truth, the truth is saying you're not free. You're still a slave to your sin. But you erroneously believe that you are free because you come from good stock, good heritage, good DNA. And you're ignoring the fact that true freedom, even in the Old Testament, has always come through faith. It's never mattered about your background. It's never mattered about a great spiritual lineage of people who love Jesus. Everyone is a slave to sin. And everyone who is a slave to sin is a slave. Well, who sins? Everyone. Bible says he that says that they don't have sin is a liar and the truth is not in them. So if everyone sins, then everyone is a slave to their sin and there is no freedom from the bondage of sin outside of Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying here. So he points out that uh, you guys, not only are you sinful, but you're sinful because the word is not truly in you. The word that should have been in you is not in you because when you hear truth being spoken, The only truth, Jesus says, the truth that I'm giving you comes from the Father, the same Father that you claim to have, right? So if I'm giving you truth from the Father and you hear that truth, but you want to kill the messenger of that truth, you can't possibly be connected to that same Father. So you're still trusting in your DNA and your heritage, and you're actually removed from the very Father who gave that truth. So when, they, when he says that, when he points out uh, that uh, you, he says, I speak what I've seen in the presence of the Father. So then you do what you have heard from your Father. This gets, well, I'll talk, touch on this in a couple of verses later because he keeps saying this. You're doing what your Father does. You're doing the things that your Father wants you to do. That has to be making them feel really weird because they're like, we, we know who our Father is. Why are you pointing this out? Well, take a look at this, verse 39. Our Father is Abraham. They replied. So they're already starting with, listen, we know who our father is. Our father is Abraham. We know where we find our freedom and our truth. It's in Abraham. And look at how Jesus responds. The next part of 39, he says, you would do what Abraham did if you were Abraham's children. In other words, you're claiming to be a descendant of Abraham. And you're claiming that your faith and your freedom is rooted in being connected to Abraham. But if he truly were your father, If you really were uh, children of Abraham, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? Abraham believed by faith, didn't he? Abraham believed what God said. They're saying, basically, Jesus is saying, if you really were the children of Abraham, you would do what he did, but you're not doing that. You're trying to kill me a man who has told you the truth. Listen, when God brought the truth to Abraham, he didn't seek to rebel against God. He didn't seek to kill God. He did the opposite. He obeyed God. He placed his faith in God, which is why Jesus then goes to verse 41 and he says, you're doing what your father does. Okay, so what is Jesus getting at here? I like to think that this is the first Maury Povich part of the Bible. I like to think that this is really kind of this, this call out. Jesus is doing a spiritual paternity test. This is something that he does with all of us. We should all be subject to getting that spiritual paternity test. Who is my actual father? Jesus is looking at these Jews, these Jewish leaders, and he says, in the case of the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem, 
Abraham is not the father. God is not the father. He is telling them, you have a different father. As much as you claim to come from this great heritage, as much as you claim to have this belief, as much as you claim to love God, you do not have any real connection to this father. You have a different one. And then what he, what he, what he points out, I think is so telling because Jesus has already demonstrated something about our faith and about our paternity. The evidence of your paternity is never in your declaration. It is always in your demonstration. You see, what you show shows who you come from. Not just what you say, not just what you claim to believe, not just what you can recite, not just what you have memorized, but what you actually demonstrate proves not just who you are, but whose you are. And we see Jesus is showing, there's no way you could be the father, or or there's no way that he could be your father. Because if he truly were your father, you would be doing what your father does. You would be functioning the way your father did, but you're not because you have a different paternity. Now, when he calls them out, he's basically saying, your, you, you, in your demonstration, what you're demonstrating is a lack of righteousness. You see, if you have real righteousness, your works will demonstrate the one from whom the righteousness flows. So their desire to react and as a slave to sin shows up really clear, right? What is sin again? Our desire for self over our desire for God. And so as long as I think my desire for self coincides with a desire for God, I'm okay with it until my desire for self gets challenged by what a real desire for God should be. And so these folks are now getting told, hey, this thing, this desire, this way that you've been living does not look like what it means to truly desire the true father. And so what do they do? They do what we do. You thought that you, your truth was correct. Someone challenges that truth. You can't, really ch- you can't really argue with the points of the actual uh, challenge. And so what we normally do in our sinful nature to self-protect and to d- be defensive is we start attacking the messenger. We, 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 we don't want to actually weigh, we say this often, I don't want to weigh the veracity of the claim. So I just want to come against the claimant. I want to tell them, well, no, I don't know that I, 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 I don't know that I can argue with that, but I can talk about what I don't like about you. I can talk about the fact that there's something about you I can question. Why should I believe what you're saying when I have reasons to believe I shouldn't even listen to you? And that's what, this is what they do. Because after he calls out and says, you're only doing what your father does. Your father is the devil. Your father is Satan. Your father is one who is the father of lies. You are following him. Now, really quick, before I even talk about their response, isn't it interesting? This story started with everyone believing or tons of people believing. And it moves to this place where Jesus is now calling them devils or calling them uh, children of the devil. You might say that's pretty harsh. You might say that that doesn't seem loving at all. But again, anytime our faith is challenged to the extent where we begin to start deepening our love for him, it's always loving. It's always good. Things don't always have to sound good or even make us feel good for them to actually be good. We love to quote the scripture all the time. All things work together for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say that all things are good. It says all things work together for our good. And so being challenged, even if it makes you feel bad, should actually move us to a place where we go, it is very good if I end up landing in a, in a place where I have a deeper love and a deeper appreciation and a deeper conviction about what it means to follow and love Jesus. 
So now their paternity has been challenged. So here they are, the paternity of their parentage, all of that has been challenged, and that would make anyone defensive. So they respond in their defensiveness. That's what we do when we're enslaved to our sin. We respond with defensiveness. What do you do when your truth, right, or when truth shows that your parentage is not what you thought? Your identity is challenged. Look, for those of you who know me, I love doing ancestral research. I love being able to look up different uh, family connections and where we come from. And uh, sometimes it's, it's really good because we've got a lot of family kind of oral histories that we've heard over and over again. And sometimes looking at the records will validate it. Sometimes it'll clarify it. Sometimes it'll disprove some family myths that we have as well. But what's been really interesting is the DNA component to ancestral research. You see, It used to be that people would go get DNA tests and you pay a certain amount of money and it was done at a hospital or special clinics. But over time, it's become available for mass consumption. So now we all can go get uh, DNA tests. We can go to a a drugstore and get a DNA kit. If people want to be able to test uh, the parentage of a child, they can just go and do that. And scientists tell us that those tests are roughly 99.9% accurate you don't often have a false DNA test. We're not talking about whether or not you can connect, am I related to this great-great-grandparent? Just from a, just figuring out who the father of a child is, those DNA tests are ironclad. But people sometimes will get mad when the truth they get uh, doesn't match up with the truth they had owned or claimed or professed. What do you do if in the unfortunate event a DNA test comes back and you find out who I thought was my father isn't my father. Well, if you've had a great, if you've had an idea in your mind about the relationship you had there, you get incredibly defensive. No, that can't be true. Now, you don't know or you don't have the scientific argument to be able to prove that the DNA test is, is false. So you can't deal with the fact. All you can do is deal with what you feel about it. No, that can't be true because I have this or I had that or I had this or I had this relationship or I've done these things. And yet the facts say that there is no biological connection to this father. This is kind of where they are. Once the, once the spiritual DNA test gets pulled on them, they can't actually attack the test with any real intellectual integrity. So they attack the person that's bringing the news. This is what the Jewish leaders did with Jesus. So how do they respond? They respond by saying, uh, you, if, you, if you take a look here at verse, uh, the second half of verse 41, <clears throat> well, we weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. Now, this phrase is, is, can mean one of two things. They could e- either be taking a shot at Jesus and his questionable parentage. We've talked about this before. They could easily be saying, you're talking about us not being connected to our father. At least we weren't born of sexual immorality right? They could be taking a shot and going, at least we don't have a mom who, while she was engaged, came back pregnant and claiming God did it. At least we don't have a mom that has this spurious reputation, this questionable origin that you have right now. We don't have that. We have real faithful parents who didn't sully the family name. Or it could also be them, them pointing to their own uh, ethnicity, right? They were Jewish and they were saying, we, we didn't come from sexual immorality. That's how they viewed another group. And we're gonna see them mention this to Jesus. That's how they viewed a group called the Samaritans. 
history tells us that Samaritans were this group of people that had, over periods of time, uh, Jewish people who had mixed and commingled with Greek people, and so they formed this kind of what, pe- what they would have looked at in this horrific way of talking. They would have looked at them as almost like not pure blood Jews. They were half mixed breed type people called the Samaritans. And because they thought that their bloodline wasn't pure, that led to them also being spiritually unpure, having different ways of believing, having different ways of practicing. And so those things got connected. If you were a Samaritan, you were unclean, you were impure. And so they they were able to actually uh, connect their faith with their ethnicity. Our Jewish bloodline is pure. We're not like those Samaritan people who have Jewish blood mixed with Greek-speaking blood. Our father is God, and we are the pure Jews. Now, we should take something from this. Any faith that connects God with ethnic purity is never the work of God. That is always associated with the work of Satan. That's why later they look at Jesus and go, you must be a Samaritan. You must have a demon. You look at verses 42 and 43. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here for I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. Y'all, this is actually hitting on our idea of free will right now, isn't it? This idea that we are free, how free are you? They, it wasn't that they just didn't listen to his word. They could not listen to his word because they were still slaves to their own sin. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. You don't understand what I say because you can't listen to my word. You know, in in many ways, we see Jesus doing here what we see Paul doing later. Paul kind of shows us you're either in Adam, the first Adam, fallen nature, or the second Adam, Jesus, the redeemed nature. There's no in between. Your father is either one of two people, God or the devil. Now that's harsh. Sounds really harsh here, but it's, but it's true. Because a truth is harsh does not mean it's not loving. Because a truth is harsh does not mean it's not from God. There are a lot of soft, sensitive, very thoughtful ways to be wrong. And there are some necessarily harsh ways that God is right. God is showing us that our actions show us who our father is. Jesus keeps saying, your father is the devil. Your actions show who your father is. That's how spiritual DNA works. And it takes us to verses 44 through 47. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So when he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's word. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. They are nowhere near as free as they think they are, because they actually don't have the truth to set them free. You see, if we come into this world born in rebellion. And when you think about what happened, when he says, you are of your father, the devil, go back and remember, remember that what happened in the garden in Genesis, Adam and Eve ensnared by Satan's lies. 
Satan's lies, making them believe that what it is that they really wanted, they could get outside of God's word. What sin does is it makes us believe that there's something more we should be getting when everything we need is already where God has decreed. And so now they've already been going, Adam and Eve has been living in perfect relationship with God, having all of their needs met. And Satan comes in and instigates rebellion against God, fooled them into thinking that they would get something that they truly already had in God uh, already. True peace, true fulfillment. They, we, have been enslaved into finding our own fulfillment ever since. We're born slaves. We're born prisoners. We don't choose because we don't have the truth. And the only way that we choose God, the only way we choose to serve, the only way we choose to love is when the truth sets us free. What are we being freed from? What are we being freed from? Christ is freeing us from the captivity that is our own sin. These leaders didn't like what Jesus had to say, and we don't always like what Jesus has to say, and they attacked him because of it. And in many ways, we attack him because of it. Look at verse 48. The Jews responded to him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, what do you see them doing here? They, they're basically going, you, you come, we don't have to listen to you. You come from questionable origins. You're probably a Samaritan and you probably have a demon. You have a lot of this ethnic racism that's playing as well. You, because you probably come from that mixed uh, breed group of folks and we've already determined that they are nothing but crazy demoniacs, you're probably one of them. Why? It's not like he did something demonic, right? It's not like he did something crazy. He said something that didn't align with their truth. How do you respond when God's truth doesn't align with yours? How are you prone to feel when God's truth doesn't validate and actually begins to call out and declare yours as false? Well, they just determined, you know what? I don't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you all the reasons why I just don't need to listen to you. You must be a Samaritan. You must have a demon. And Jesus responds, I do not have a demon. On the contrary, I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, they will never see death. You, you look at what Jesus is saying here. He's basically saying, yes, you think you don't have to listen to me, but ultimately all I'm doing is honoring my father. I'm not even looking for my own glory. The father validates my own glory so that if you keep my word, you won't ever see death. Now they immediately hear this and they go, this right now is good proof. Look at how they respond. Then the Jews said, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and so did the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? You see, they're looking and they're going, you're making these bold claims. First of all, you're saying that you come from the father, that the father is the one who validates what you're saying. Then you're saying that anybody who believes in you, anybody who trusts in your word is never going to die. You're making a claim that only God can make. And in order, that's the only way you could be saying you're making this statement that makes it seem like you're above the prophets, which would only be God. How could you, how could you even say that? You're not even 50 years old yet. So we know you can't be greater than Abraham because Abraham comes before you. 
It's been roughly, according to certain scholars, 18 centuries from the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus. And you're just 50. You're not 1800. How in the world can you claim to be greater than Abraham? How can you claim to have this kind of power? And Jesus responds in in verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I'd be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Here Jesus is again saying, you keep, you keep trusting in this whole, you know, it's funny. At first they're like, our father is Abraham. And then he kind of shuts that down. Like, well, our father is God. And he starts to shut it down again and go, if you really, if that was your father, you would have believed me, right? And he says, this guy, this God that you claim is your father, um, he glorifies me. And then he just basically uh, confirms this claim that they make, this question that they ask him. Are you saying you're greater than our father Abraham? He basically goes, yep, affirmative, I am. I'm greater than Abraham. Not only am I greater than Abraham, this isn't a blasphemous thing to say because Abraham knew that I was greater than him. He rejoiced at seeing my day coming. In other words, your truth is rooted in misunderstanding. You've misunderstood God and his prophet Abraham because they both pointed to me. This is why we say this often. It might even sound like just so cliche, but it's true. It does not matter how sincerely you believe your truth. You could be sincerely wrong if you misunderstand the truth. And they have misunderstood up to this point. So they're going, you sound crazy. You're not even 50 yet. You can't do any of this stuff. And he goes, I preceded Abraham. I came before Abraham. Look at his response in verse 58. Truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. I came before him. Then he uses this language. He says, before Abraham was, I am. For any Jewish reader or Jewish listener, they would have understood this to be, we've talked about this before, a claim of being God. For any man to say this would have been blasphemy. For any mortal, regular man to say this would have been a stonable offense in in the Jewish law. And so they knew the moniker, I am. They knew what that meant. They knew that I am is reserved for God and God alone. Remember back when Moses is talking to God via the burning bush and Moses is like, well, who should I tell them sent me? And and God said, tell them I am sent me. They've always known I am is a reference to God. So again, when people say, well, Jesus was this and Jesus was that, he never really claimed to be God. Ask these Jewish leaders if he was claiming to be God. They knew. Jewish is saying, uh, Jesus is saying, you need to understand that not only am I the son of God, but I am God in God the flesh. You need to submit. You need to believe. And there is no freedom outside of that. There is no true faith outside of that. And look at how they respond in verse 59. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. What we see in this text is that Jesus is showing what authentic faith should look like, what authentic followers should look like, what it means to truly be free. And he proves that they are not. Why? Because they didn't truly believe in Jesus as the son of God. So this brings us back to the four points that I said that Jesus is showing us and what it means to really be free, to really truly follow him. The first step is we must believe in him. The whole passage starts with, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. 
And then when you get to verse 58, he says, truly I tell you before Abraham, I, before Abraham was, I am. So we must believe that Jesus is the son of God and that he is God. That's why he can say, through me, all things were made that has ever been made. Before Abraham was, I am. To believe in Jesus is to believe he is our salvation. Without that, there is no true freedom. Without that, there is no true faith. We cannot be disciples of Jesus outside of this. And it's totally based on faith, just like Abraham. Now look, this idea of this kind of faith This idea of receiving salvation based on faith in Jesus is totally counter to everything we've been programmed to believe or or in ways that we perform, right? Do something to get something. Create something to get something. Do this service to get this service. Create, uh, uh, Create this kind of a product to get this kind of remuneration, right? Our economy works this way. If I do something, you pay me for it. But in Jesus's economy, he says, I do something and you get something. I do something and you get something. And all I require from you is humble faith. So we must be convinced that he is God, that he is our salvation. The second point Jesus brings up again in verse 31, if you continue, if you abide in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and it will set you free. In other words, if you continue in my words, you're my disciples. I am the bread of life. I'm the resurrection. I'm the good shepherd. I am, I am, I am. We need to be in him. We need to abide, continue to stay, to persevere in his word. This is where we come to see him. This is where we come to know him. This is where we come to enjoy who he is. There is no way to be a disciple of Jesus without truly abiding in him. So it's not enough to just say, I believe in him. I actually have to abide in him, abide in his word. One pastor put it this way. There are multiple ways that we can actually abide in him. We need to be persuaded of his truth. We need to be attracted to his beauty. We need to treasure his value. We need to be overwhelmed by the peacefulness of his grace and his power. We have to see nourishment in his bread, refreshment in his water, and the brightness of his light. So abiding means to never cease in any of these things. That means I should never be tempted to or be persuaded that something else is true when it isn't. I should never look for beauty in anything that supersedes the beauty of who Jesus is. I should never treasure or value anything more than the salvation that I get in abiding in Jesus. In abiding in Jesus, I should always be moved towards peacefulness because of the grace and power of God. So whenever there is a disruption of peace, there's something about Jesus that I'm missing. I should never look for nourishment in anything outside of who Jesus is and his word and his spirit. Nothing should bring me more nourishment than that. Nothing should refresh me more than him and his water. Nothing should elucidate or clarify things in my life more than his light. This is what it means to abide. Thirdly, we live for him. You know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then later, if the sun sets you free, you really will be free. You will be free indeed. There's something about being set free, this new identity, this new status. We are no longer slaves to sin. You know what that means? We say this often. We're not just free from something. We're free to something. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then. 
and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. What Christ has done is he's given us freedom from the tyranny of self to the freedom of willing service to Jesus. And finally, in closing, we're called to look like him. Ephesians 5, starting at verse 17. Listen to how the Apostle Paul tells us what it means to truly look like Jesus. And in Ephesians 4, I'm sorry, verse 17. Therefore, I say this and I testify in the Lord, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbors, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you, along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. We're called to believe him, to abide in him, to live for him, and to look like him. And Jesus says these things not to reject us and to send us away. He's saying, come. Dwell in me. Abide in me. I've saved you for freedom. A freedom where you look like me, where you enjoy me, where you value me. This truth will save you from yourself and you will truly be free indeed. How free are we? May we be free in such a way that nothing else satisfies us, Nothing else breaks our chains. Nothing else sets us free like the love, the life, the joy that Jesus brings. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you love us so much that you will make us uncomfortable. Thank you that you love us so much that you will challenge our truth until it looks like yours. Thank you that you love us enough not to leave us in believing insincerely or in just not believing at all. God, I pray that we would be moved and that we will be shaken in ways that make us wake up to all the ways in which we don't truly believe you enough, ways in which we have looked for other things to, to satisfy, ways in which your water is not enough, your bread is not enough, your resurrection is not enough. God, give us a deep grieving in a way that only you can bring real comfort. Let us be aware of areas in our lives where we still are in bondage in ways that you and you alone have the keys to unlock those chains. God, we pray that we would be people that follow you truly. We don't want counterfeit faith. We're praying for authentic faith, the faith that frees. Lord, let us show who our Father is, not in what we declare, but what we demonstrate. Through the power of your Son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God our Savior be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever and wherever you are, all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.